you turn to Exodus chapter 4, and I have uh, actually a very similar theme that Bill had this morning. This uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, is a story of Moses inter- interacting with God. And God has just told Moses that he's going to go before Pharaoh, and he's going to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And I know you know that story because you've read it in the book or you've seen the movie. And, um, and so Moses is not very confident. And I, I love, there's, there's a few things that, lots of things I really love about Moses. He is one of my, my heroes in the Bible. I love, him be, I love the fact that when Moses thinks he's ready, remember that he's living in Pharaoh's house. Do you remember this story? He's living in Pharaoh's house. He's been put in a basket. He's been floated down the Nile River. The princess daughter rescues him. He grows up in Pharaoh's house, becomes a prince. And then he sees his brothers being mistreated. Da, da, da. Remember the whole story? And so he, he, ha- he has it in his heart. There's something in his heart from, from his youth to see his people go free, to see the Israelites go free. And so he, he tries to rescue his brother and, um, from the, with the Egyptian. He ends up killing the Egyptian. And then his brothers get in an argument, and he tries to break up the argument. And his brothers have no idea what, it, what he's doing. They, you know, he's, he doesn't fit in with Pharaoh. He doesn't really fit in with his brothers. Nobody actually, you know, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't want to be included in Pharaoh's, you know, entourage. But, he also, his, but he's also not received by his brothers. And they're, they're like, who made you a ruler between us? I mean, who made you an arbitrator between us? And, he, and he's misunderstood. And... He runs out into the wilderness and he stays out there for 40 years. And you know that whole thing. And and the first thing I think that's important here is that sometimes when you think you're ready and you have all this confidence, God says, no, no, you're not ready. And I think there is, um, uh, this is, this is, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how to articulate this exactly, but I'll try to put into words what I think that we all know. There are times when confidence is coming from faith in God. And there are times when confidence is coming from your own sense of your strength. Um, Paul said in Philippians, we are the true circumcision who put no confidence in the flesh but glory in Christ Jesus. And I think that when our confidence is, in, is rooted in ourself, and I'm talking about self-will, selfish ambition, I'm not talking about... Um, okay, let me just finish this. Self-will, selfish ambition. It's, it's, I, I'm, I'm well educated. It's, it's all about my ability to perform this duty. I think, and we say, well, I am well prepared to, for this duty. I think God says, no, you're not, you're not ready. You're not ready. And then, when, then later on, Moses is, um, in the wilderness for 40 years. He's totally, I, we don't know what's happening in, in the wilderness, really. We have this encounter. We see Moses again when he encounters this bush. He's, the bush is talking to him. He's talking back to the bush. And the bush says, I've seen the impression of my... It's not George, either. And he says, I've seen the, I've seen the impression of my people. And he's having this conversation with this bush. And he says, you know, and God says to him, and I, I want to free my people. I've, I hear my people crying out to me for deliverance, and I'm going to send you. And now this guy, who 40 years earlier was thought that he was the deliverer and felt very confident that he could deliver his people, now says to God, who am, I have two questions for you. The first one is, who am I? And then probably the more important question is, who are you? <laughs> and God's answer to who, he, who, who am I is, I will be with you. 
And his answer is, to who, who should I say sent me? He says to God. And God says, I am. He's <laughs> like, okay, uh, Pharaoh, I'd like to tell you that um, I need you to let go all your workforce because uh, I had this conversation with this bush. And he was not in a good mood. Really, what was his name? I am. Uh-huh. Last name? I am that I am. Okay. And so, so Moses is having this, this, in, this conversation with God about the fact that he doesn't think that Pharaoh is going to be very impressed with his deliverance plan of telling Pharaoh to let his people go. So, so in Exodus 4, it picks up this story, and you know Moses is trying to tell God he, he doesn't want to go, he's not ready, he doesn't talk very well, and you know God's got mad at him once already, and finally God says to Moses, what do you, what do you have in your hand? Verse 4, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses said, what if they don't believe me? Or what if they don't listen to what I say? What if they say, the Lord has appeared to you? The Lord said to him, and the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it down to the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. So he stretched out the hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And the Lord said, that they may believe, that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. And... Uh, I love this story for lots of reasons, but tonight I want to use it for um, a specific one. The Lord says to Moses, what do you have in your hand? He says, I have a staff. Now, how many, talk, how many of you understand? He's not just talking about a stick. Like, what do you have in your hand? I got a stick in my hand. He's talking about, he's a shepherd. These are the tools of his trade. He says to Moses, what do you have in your hand? What are, in other words, what are you really good at? And Moses said, this is what I'm good at. Listen, I'm not a deliverer. My occupation is shepherd. And that's what I have in my hand. And God says, throw that down. And he throws it down and it becomes a snake. And first of all, I'd like to propose to you that it always was a snake. Like your strength outside of God is a serpent that will bite you. And God says, Moses, I want you to pick it up, but not by the head, which is the way any wise man who lived in the desert would pick up a poisonous snake. But God says, I want you to pick it up by the tail. There's something going on here. God will speak to Moses later in life about this situation. Not the snake, but he will talk to Moses about the fact that it's all about God's strength and not Moses' strength. And so he says to Moses, pick the snake up. But by the tail. Okay. Remember, Moses just ran from the snake. This is not like a king snake. This is something poisonous. So he picks the snake up by the tail and it becomes a staff again. And I, I just I want to talk tonight a little bit about managing our strength. And I, I actually think that our strength overemphasized is our greatest weakness. And our, you know, the, this, the thing about your, your weakness is, you, you know that you know that you have weaknesses. Whatever your weakness is. If you're, you know, not good at something, it's like, if you're, you know, if you're older than 25, 
you know what you're not good at. People come to you and go, you know, you suck at, and then you can finish the sentence. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to tell me, like, I know. Um, you know, you could use some improvement in, yeah, we could agree, you know. I, I, know, what I, I, I know what I'm not good at. But what I'm, what's scary is, is that there are things that I actually think I can do without God. Now, I never say, I could do this without God, you know. I just, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a nurse, I'm a mechanic, I, I'm a mother, I'm a father, whatever, you know, whatever your occupation is like. I went to school and I can actually do this by myself. No, actually you can't. Actually, that's the thing that's going to get you in trouble. Actually, that's the staff that you need to hold by the tail. And you need to be very aware that your ability to do this, although you may have went to eight years of school and you have all this ability, you've read all these books and you've done everything right, your actually ability to do this thing that you think is your strength is actually the thing that can come back and bite you. And over and over I see that our strength overemphasized is the thing that actually comes back and bites people more often than your weakness. If you're, if you're an integrous person, you typically have some kind of accountability. You typically have some kind of, I, I want to say this in a positive way, you've built some kind of culture or walls around your, if you're very old, around your weakness. Like you, you know you have a, a weakness. If you have some integrity, if you have any integrity at all, you have figured out a way to somehow not fall into that ditch. Am I making sense? But you don't have, you don't typically build walls or accountability for your strength. And yet it's actually called account for your ability. Not account for your disability. And I love, I think it was Paul Manwarren who said this first, or at least I heard it from him first. He said, actually accountability isn't, isn't, isn't bringing people into my life who keep me from smoking. It's, it's bringing people into my life to make sure that I'm on fire. It's, it's actually, it's actually, now I, I believe in, in discipline. I believe in correcting, you know, when you're in relationship with people, I believe in correcting one another when you see something wrong in one another's life. And this could be a totally different message. But tonight I'm talking about giving an account for your ability. That actually where you need account accountability is where your strengths are and to make sure that that strength doesn't become something that comes back to bite you that comes back or that creates in you an attitude of arrogance or entitlement (laughs) solomon said in proverbs 16 he said a man's gift will make room for him and bring him before great men. A man's gift will make room for him and bring him before great men. Proverbs uh, 27, 21. I'm going to read it to you in the New American Standard and then read it to you in the Message Bible. It says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but each man is tested by the praise accorded him. I love this. The Message Bible says it this way. The purity of silver is, and gold is tested by putting them in fire. The purity of human hearts is tested by giving them a little fame. I want to read it to you again. The purity of silver and gold is tested by putting them in the fire. The purity of human hearts is tested by giving them a little fame. 
Abraham Lincoln's famous quote, he said, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but, I, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. There, there's something about... There's something about this, the, the temptation to feel like you are entitled to something more than other people when you can, when you have favor and when you have a gift or when you have gifts that are, if you will, more obvious than the people around you. Is that a good way to say it? More obvious than the people around you. Somehow, it's easy to have the sense that you are entitled to different things or to things that, like you're above the law. And I am, I am very concerned for our movement in, I've probably shared this message in different ways in the last three years, probably ten times. At least seven of those times here. And I have a concern. I feel like we're in the greatest season. I'm in the greatest season of my life. And I have a sense that we are in the greatest season of our life as both a people, if we are, if we are a tribe, as a tribe, as a people, and I look around at the momentum that we have, and the, the, you know, there's, I don't think anyone could possibly, I know Bill, Bill and I have been together a long, long time. We never, we, we dreamed of God doing powerful things through, through us, our teams, through our families and all that for sure. We're, we're definitely both dreamers. We never dreamed of this. <laughs> this, we never dreamed of this. Like this is, this is beyond, someone said I was in a, a leaders meeting in Asia, and they, they, one of the, they had, we had questions and answers, and someone said to me, like, um, did, you, did you dream, did you and Bill and the team, did you guys dream of this happening? I'm like, no, 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 no. no. We never, you know, I, I mean, I could tell you some of my dreams, but I never imagined that a whole movement would come out of this place. And that people all over the world would go, I've seen you, I know you, I know Bill and Danny and your team, and your teams have been here, and the influence that God has given us, I'm like, wow. The, the good thing about things happening that are so big is that it keeps you, either, either you're really arrogant and you have the audacity to think that you could actually make this happen. But for me, I'm like, I know this has to be God. I could never... I, when I say I, I'm talking about all y'all team. I know all y'all. You guys are amazing. You're not that amazing. You're not that amazing. This is God. Are you following? This is God. I mean, our staff, I could throw the whole staff down and they wouldn't do all that. You didn't get that. Anyway, it was kind of a joke, a play on words. You'll get it probably in a little while, and it'll come to you. Several years ago, I was lying in bed. I was between that, you know, sleep and awake state. You know that kind of, you're, you're not quite awake, you're not quite asleep. It's in that state. And just as clear as someone audibly spoke to me, the Lord said, protect your innocence. He said, just these words. Remember? I sure Protect your innocence. And uh, I wasn't praying about it. I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't studying. I just, he just said, protect your innocence. 
And I, uh, it was as if, it was as if the Lord had shouted it to me. I felt so convicted. Now I didn't feel like I was convicted, like uh, that I had done something wrong or that we had done something wrong. I felt convicted, like if we don't watch over our innocence, someone will take it from us. And out of that that word, and I brought that word to to the Bill and the team, and everybody was feeling similar things. God was speaking similar things to them too. And you know, out of that word, we had several opportunities to do TV stuff at the time, and things were opening up for us. And and we just did not feel like it was the right time. Like we didn't, we wish wouldn't take any contracts. We, it, the, nobody was doing anything wrong. I, I mean, I just want to be clear. Like the people who were offer, offering us the opportunities were doing it from the goodness of their heart. But it was not the right time for us. We had not finished our wilderness experience. And God said, "Protect your innocence." And um. I think uh, I wrote down a quote. I don't know if I have it here somewhere. But I think um, one of the most important things for us to remember in this time here it is right here. Uh, next to knowing when to seize an opportunity, the most important thing in life is to know when to forego an advantage. Next to knowing when to seize an opportunity, the most important thing in life is to know when to forego an advantage. Benjamin Disrell said that. And I, I think that sometimes God creates opportunities he doesn't want us to take. And I, I feel like we're in this season that this is a very simple word, really. The, the word I actually have is that God's given us tremendous favor and we need to guard our heart. So if you don't understand anything else I'm saying, that's all I'm really saying. I'm just saying it in different ways. That we have to protect our heart because God is doing something in our lives. God is promoting you. God is promoting us. God is promoting our movement. And, and give a man a little fame and you'll test his heart. And so I think it's really important that we watch over our heart. Proverbs says, watch all of your heart with all diligence, for from it flow all the issues of life. And I was thinking tonight, as we, um, as we were worshiping, a story that several of us have told many times in the Bible, Second Samuel chapter 12. Why don't you turn there? Just let me read it to you. This is a story about Nathan when he has a conversation with David. Verse 1, the Lord said, the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said, there was two men in one city, one rich and one and the other poor. And the rich man had a great, had great, had great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished. And he grew up and they grew up together with him, with him and his children. And it would eat his bread and drink his cup and lie in his bosom. And was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his herd to prepare for the way, for the person who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who's done this 
deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord of Israel, it is you I anointed as king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you all the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things than these. Now, this, this is Nathan's rebuke to David when he fell with Bathsheba. I want to read you that encounter, which is a chapter earlier, in chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with them and all of Israel, and they destroyed all the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabib, and David stayed in Jerusalem. Now when evening it came, David arose from his bed, walked around the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one of them said, This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the headtite. And David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself of her uncleanness, she returned home. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. And it goes on to say that David tried to get Uriah to come home. He calls Uriah home from the battlefield, tells Joab, the commander, send Uriah home. And he tries, obviously, he's trying to hide the fact that she's pregnant by him. And so he's trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that Uriah thinks that the child that's conceived is his child. Makes sense? But Uriah is actually a better, a more integrous man than David. And Uriah says, you know, and so David says, you know, hey, you know, thanks for coming in from battle and let's have a few drinks and you go home and, you know, and tomorrow we'll talk. And he said, how can I? Go home to my wife when the armies of Israel are in battle with their enemies. Now, I don't know if you understand what's happening, but God is actually talking to David about what he should be doing, about what he should have been doing. And so finally, so David sends the guy home anyway. He goes, no, no, you got to go home. And the man goes to his house and sleeps at his front door and refuses to go into his house. And David does all this stuff, tries to get him drunk and sends him home. The guy still won't sleep with his wife. And, you know, Bathsheba's like, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say, you know, this isn't working. And so David sends a note with Uriah and says, listen, go tell Joab this. And he writes a note and the note says to Joab, Joab, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take Uriah, put him on the front line. And when you, when you're in the heat, when, when you're, when the army is in the heat of the battle, I want all the army of Israel to retreat, but I want Uriah, except for Uriah. I want Uriah to die in this battle. And Uriah doesn't know it, but he's carrying his own death threat. He, he's so trusted by the king, he doesn't even open the letter to see that the king is betraying him. And that's exactly what happens. He, he's on the front line, and Joab has the armies retreat, doesn't tell Uriah. Uriah dies in the battle. 
Joab sends him sends David a letter that that his uh, orders are followed. Uriah means God is my light. Isn't that amazing? I was thinking about this story in Nathan the prophet, who actually the cousin of David and who has a lifelong relationship with David. So does his other prophet Gad. Nathan tells him a story. Listen, there was this rich man and there's this poor man. And I want to tell you the story, David. I think you'd be interested. The rich man has all these flocks. The poor man has one sheep, and it's his pet. I mean, it's grown up with his kids. And the rich man, has, you know, he's got this friend that, that comes from a long ways away, and he wants to throw this party. And, and instead of, like, taking, you know, a sheep from his flock, he looks over the fence and sees his neighbor's pet that grew up with his kids. And he slaughters that, that, that sheep, that little lamb, for his friends. What's, what's astounding to me is David has no idea that it's him. This, I think this is one of the worst stories in the Bible. David does, doesn't have any idea that he is the rich man that has stole this, the one pet lamb from this poor man, and yet he has slept with Bathsheba. He's got tons of wives, tons of concubines. He's got all this power, all this prestige. He sleeps with another man's wife, not because he doesn't have a hundred other wives he can sleep with, but he just wants her. It's because just selfishness. And then he has her husband killed. This is like, and I don't know, a month later or a year later, whatever, soon. I mean, in the same season, he tells him the story, and David has no conviction. He doesn't have any idea he's talking about him. Because he's still thinking, I'm the man after God's heart. I'm the man who, who rushed in the presence of God. I'm the man who killed Goliath. I'm the man who did all this amazing stuff. And actually, David, no, right now, you're the man who murdered somebody and committed adultery with his wife. And you're the man who took out the fire of God. You killed the fire of God. You did. The man after God's heart. And David begins to build, you know, beg for forgiveness and all that stuff. But what does it teach us? First thing it says is it says, In the spring, when kings go out to war, David stays home. Something's already wrong. Before he kills anybody, before he sleeps with anybody, he already is feeling like, you know, kings go out to war, but, I, you know, I, I'm entitled. I've been doing this a long time, and, you know, Joab, you go, take the servants. And the crazy thing is that they, are, they win the battle against their enemy without their king, and yet they have sinned against God, and they've put David in a situation he should have never been in. You know, the, the safest place in the world is wherever God sends you. Some people are like, I don't, I don't want to go to Africa. If God sends you to Africa, if he sends you to, you know, some, to the Congo or some dangerous place, if God sends you, that's the safest place in the world for you. You need to be there. The angels are there protecting you. Well, I need to stay here. I need to protect myself. Listen... You're going to die. 
when Bill said, if you have a terminal disease, you should, you know, come forward. I'm thinking everybody ought to be up front. You're all dead. You just don't know when. You're all going to die. The question is, are you really going to live? No, I mean, that's the real question. Like, you're all terminal. It might be at 100, 150. I mean, Jesus is coming back. I'm going to be, you know, whatever. I'm going to go up. Well, you probably die of no oxygen on the way up, and Jesus will have to raise you from the dead. (laughs) Because it says it's appointed to all men to die once. Well, how about Enoch? I don't know, you know, whatever. I don't know all that stuff. I'm not that well read. But I do know this, that most all of you are going to die. Maybe there's a couple of you going to walk with God and be no more. That's awesome. I hope it's you. I'm thinking it's me. And I've already instructed the students, and I will do it again this year to the first year students. Like, if I drop dead, do not raise me from the dead. I hate pain. I'm doing it once. I'm going to heaven. I've been looking forward to it all my life. And I'm afraid they'll get me half back. No, I have a real fear. I'll be up and I'll be, I won't, you know, something won't come back. Someone, there'll be somebody, a doubter in the room, just enough to get me alive, and I'll just be like, <laughs> something, and I'll be like, no, 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 if I die, and I go through that, you know, whatever, if it's painful, whatever, I just want to do it once, and I'm done, I'm going, I'm in heaven, and, you know, whatever, you know, I've already told my wife, find another man, <laughs> it's all good. I mean, if I die, whatever. If she doesn't want to, that's fine either too, whatever. I'm totally off track. <laughs> Whoo, wrong spirit. Just <laughs> it's so easy to come to this place in our lives where we actually feel like we are entitled to something because of what God has done through us. And, you know, our message is you're a child of God, you're a royal priesthood, you're no longer a sinner, you're a saint when you receive Jesus Christ. And that, that's our message, and, you know, that's the core of what we teach, and I believe that with all of my heart, with all of my book. <laughs> but I do think that the word of the Lord right now is protect your innocence. Watch over your heart. Be careful Because men are tested with a little fame. And and, um, and women can have a little bit more. (laughs) And um, a couple of things that came to my mind. Psalms 100, verse 4. We used to sing this all the time. I'll enter his gates with thanksgiving in in my heart. I'll enter his courts with praise. And I think Thanksgiving is a supernatural inoculation against pride and against the spirit of entitlement. I think there's something about Thanksgiving that, is in, that inherently keeps you from that spirit of entitlement. Thanksgiving says, I, I got more than I deserved. Thanksgiving says, you know, that offering, I didn't, I didn't deserve that big of an offering. I, I'm, Thanksgiving says, you know, I found a parking spot. Bless God. Entitlement says, you know what? I've been driving around here for a long time. I've paid my tithe, and I can't even find a dang parking spot. You know, I'm sick and tired of this. But Thanksgiving says, if I find one today, that's better than the last three weeks. 
I wrote this. Um, it's a really simple thing. Thankfulness is the door to happiness and the gate to heaven. It's the cure for arrogance, the inoculation for depression. It's the force against the spirit of entitlement. Thankfulness is the fruit of humility, the offspring of gratitude towards God. Thankfulness has saved many a marriage, rescued, rescued children from the grips of bitterness, and delivered countless souls from the political spirit. Thankfulness is a field that must be cultivated, weeded, and seeded. There's, there's something about thankfulness that keeps you humble. And um, this is many years ago, and I, I should have actually um, made a note where this article was from, but it was, it was uh, like psychology today. Someone actually sent it to me. But it said this. I, I remember the content of it. The, 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 it, was a, um, it was an article about felt emotion. And it said, the least felt emotion is thankfulness. The article said, the least felt emotion is thankfulness. And the, the psychologist went on to say, that thankfulness, in order for thankfulness to stay in your life, it's something you literally have to cultivate because it's the least felt emotion. And I thought, it wasn't written by a Christian. I thought, that, that's, that's amazing. But we, you can't even get into his, you enter his gates with thanksgiving. You can't even get into the gate without thankfulness. And I was thinking about my own life. I have struggled with this my, myself. I have struggled with the sense of thankfulness. I have, I have fought with the sense of entitlement on and off. I, I, I don't think my whole life, but on, on and off my, my adult life, I have struggle with the sense that I worked hard enough that I deserved that. I spent enough hours. I, I, I've worked harder than anybody, so I, it's okay for me to do that. And I told a story, I think, a few weeks ago, but I think it's a good story that, that does reveal how easy it is for that, to, that attitude to seep into your heart. We have staff parking here for staff over here and over here. Staff parking over there doesn't have any names on it. And so it's kind of like, and this place was never, I don't think it was ever built for all these people. It definitely wasn't built for 530 staff or whatever we have. I think we have more. They multiply. I don't know what they're doing. People, search. <laughs> we have staff meetings. I'm telling you, I've never seen some of these people, much less. I do, I'm like, who, who, who are you? And they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm on your staff. I'm like, really? You work for me. How long have you been here? Uh, Ten years. Oh, Awesome. What do you do? I don't even know what they do. Somebody was walking through the admin building. This is probably three months ago. And I said, hey, this is for staff. They're like, I've been on staff five years. I'm like, that's why I said you should just walk right through here whenever you want. Bill knows it's true, too. It's like I have no idea who's working here or what they do anymore. We had at my house, we, we didn't, we just provided the house like a week ago or something. We had an intern and staff meeting for just for first year school ministry at my house. They were had it at my house. I was not supposed to be there, but I got up late. (laughs) There was like, I don't know how many there was, 150 people at my house or 200. I'm like, who are these people? They're like, these are your staff and interns for first year. Really? Don't they have to, like, go through first and second year before they can be an intern? Like, yes, they have all graduated. Where the heck was I when all these people did this? 
I don't know where they come from. So anyway, so we have, we have a parking lot that was built for like, I don't know, 20 people, I think. I don't, this just said real vision. Like, there's gonna have, someday we're gonna have 20 staff. <laughs> or we're gonna have 30 and, you know, half of them are gonna ride together. I don't know what they were thinking. So if you pull in stop, if you pull in stop parking and you, you know, you pull in, you know, after eight, you're just pretty much not going to get a parking spot, pretty much. And so, but there's, but we have a handicapped parking spot at our stop. But we don't have any, 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 we don't have anybody with, well, let me just rephrase that. We don't have any, any staff with a sticker on their car. Handicapped sticker on their car. So we don't actually have anybody like when when Charlie put that handicapped parking in there, I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to put that in. We don't have a staff member who's handicapped. They're like, it's the law. I mean, this is a stupid law. This is one of those laws. It's stupid. We just take up two spots for someone we don't have. I really got uptight about it. Charlie's like, it's the law. You know, you have to. I'm like, fine. So when I come late, I just park in a handicapped spot. I just figure they. just been doing it for longer than I'll admit at this point. I know. I'm, at least I'm confessing. So, I don't know, a few months ago, six months ago or five months ago or something, Dan Fairley and I were going to lunch and he, he said, oh, I'll ride with you. And I was parked in a regular spot and we went out to lunch and we came back. Um, a little time later, a couple hours later, and there was no, the park, my parking spot was gone, the one that I was entitled to. <laughs> and there was no parking, except for, there was parking, but it was, I would have had to actually walk 20 feet, and you know I don't need that exercise. <laughs> I'm waiting for a shuttle. I figure you only have so many heartbeats, and you shouldn't waste them on things that are unimportant. <laughs> People that hike, that's just stupid. That's just, what are you doing? That's a, that's back to Egypt. So, so I'm, I park in the handicapped parking spot with Dan. Whoop, I just pull in there. I, at first I try to, my, try, I go, oh, there's no place. I back up. I pack, park in the handicapped parking spot. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, what, are you, what am I doing? What do you mean? I honestly didn't know what he meant. He said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm parking. He said, this is a handicapped parking spot. I said, I, I know that. I don't know if you want me to, <laughs> to show you how much anxiety I have over the fact that we have to put a handicapped parking spot when we have no handicapped people here. <laughs> so I shut the car off and I opened the door. He goes, you can't park here. I said, I've been parking here for years. He said, I don't care how long you've been parking here. You cannot park here. I said, why not? He said, you're not handicapped. This goes to show how well he knows. He said, you can't park here. I was really serious. He said, you can't park here. You're not handicapped. I said, I've been parking here for three years. He said, yeah, I've seen your car. I said, I don't, I don't know what your point is. He said, no, you know what my point is. 
My point is that somehow you think it's okay because you're in charge for you to park where it's illegal to park. And he just looks at me. It really bothers me because he's much more intelligent than I am. So I'm thinking of an argument and I'm thinking every argument I have, I know he's going to somehow like do the Jedi mind trick on me and I'm still going to leave wrong. So I'm like, oh, okay, fine, I'll move. So I, I move, you know, and I'm just moving because he's upset. And I'm like, I don't actually, it's not worth it for him to be upset with me. So I, I move to a parking spot and we have to actually walk about 50 feet in the sun. I was, I was sweating when we got there. So we kind of finished the day and, and um, I went home that night. It really was on my mind all day. And I went home that night and the Lord's like, that is that spirit of entitlement. You, you think it's okay. You think you are above the law. That you have done something here that allows you to do something that no one else is allowed to do but you. And, you know, it really wasn't about parking in a handicapped parking spot. It was really about a wrong spirit. It was really about arrogance in my life. And the Lord said, remember I told you to protect your heart? I'm like, yeah, I do remember that. He says, you're not doing a very good job of it right here. I have to put Dan in your life to remind you. I'm like, he's not a prophet. He's like, yeah, you just need smart, someone smarter than you. It just shows you, to me, it shows me how easy it is for little things to become huge issues in our life. And you may think, well, that's silly, you know. I'm like, yeah, what well, starts out silly. It just starts out deciding to send your army to war instead of you. You just end up at the wrong place at the wrong time because you made a wrong decision from the wrong core value because arrogance told you to stay home. And so I just want to say tonight that it's really important that we cultivate thankfulness in our hearts. And to me, I think that, you know, there's probably a hundred different things that that helped us. I'm just thinking of one right now. And I've been thinking about it all day yesterday. I was thinking about this, that thankfulness is the inoculation from all of that. If I remain thankful, I don't do stuff like that. I'm just thankful I have a job. I'm just thankful God allowed me to preach. I'm just thankful that I got to be a part of this. I'm just thankful. I I don't even know how I got here. You know, I, I, thankfulness reminds you of where you came from. I, I want to finish this really silly example. Um, I've had this thing happen. I've never, ever told anyone about it, even my wife. It's no, no big deal. It's just something really silly. But I've never thought of it because it's so silly. But um, when we had the, um, the 76 station, we had the 76 station we owned for nine years. And, um, and there, there was a... A sink in the back that had ice cold water. I don't know where they got the water. I mean, you know, we had city water, but I don't know if they buried the line super deep. I don't know what it was, but you could drink out of that thing. It'd be 95 degrees out. And when you drank out of that faucet, it was ice cold. And I love ice cold water. And, and I drink more water than um, a camel. And for some reason, every time I drink water, I think of that service station 
and going in the back and thinking about how much I enjoyed drinking that ice cold water. It would be so hot. I'd be on my way to work and think, I'm going to drink that water. And I was thinking about thankfulness comes from remembering where you came from. There's just something simple about remember where you came from. Because if you remember where you came from, you remember, you can't make any of this happen. Like, you know, I remember, like, preaching. I drove, I love to preach. I have to tell you, like, I don't know what it is about preaching. I know people like to preach. Um, You know, I don't know. Maybe there's, maybe our whole staff feels this way. Like, I don't like to preach. I love to preach. Like, I would preach to three people. It's, the, the crowd size is not, doesn't mean a lot to me. I mean, if there's more people, that's awesome. But it's not necessary. I will preach to anybody. I preached in the campground. I preached at, I preached the convalescent hospital for six years. Yeah, they would wheel people in the convalescent hospital Sunday morning for church for six years. Every Sunday. And they, these old people, they were so, they were, I mean, you know, God bless old people. I'm getting. <sighs> God bless old people. And we would go there and I would take my kids were little and my kid, we would go from room to room and invite the people in and they would wheel them in. Most of them were in wheelchairs. And, and when I, I liked, I used to watch Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> I used to love Jimmy Swagger. I loved him, and, and, and I would love his, I loved that he preached. He preached like Chris O, Chris Overstreet. And he would like, make wild noises and do that stuff. So I was like, <laughs> so I watched Jimmy Swagger, and I would prepare my messages just as like I was preparing for a thousand, because I had a really small youth group too. And Bill said to me one time, when, when he first came to Weirville, you know, I was talking to him about, you know, I have six kids in my youth group. And Bill said, if you prepare your heart and prepare your message as if you were preaching to a thousand, someday God will allow you to preach to a thousand. And I remember that. I'm like, okay. So I would spend like a whole week preparing my message for the, for the convalescent hospital. And then I would preach to them. And if I made a really good point, they would pee on the floor. <laughs> Cheers. Literally scare the pee right out of him. <laughs> Ask Kathy, am I telling the truth? I am not exaggerating. I'd go, and the Lord said, and they would pee on the floor. Um, and then the nurses would take <laughs> my congregants out. But I have my kids, so I'd leave my kids there, and I'd finish my message to my kids. <laughs> preaching to my kids. I'll preach in the campground with, you know, one person there. My girls, one girl, one of my girls played keyboards, the other played guitar. They only knew three songs, but it didn't matter because, because when you, when you preached in the campground, people that you preached to were different every, every week. So we've sang the same three songs every week and I made my girls like they took turns. Okay, you got the keyboard this week. No, I don't want to go. You're going. Just play your three songs. It's good. <laughs> I just love to preach anywhere. I drove all the way to Ruth. You know, you don't know where Ruth is. It's like hours, hours there, hours back. This car we had, like, it ate gas, like seven miles to a gallon. They gave me an offering. It was, I'm still in America. It was $38. took $69 worth of gas, and I owned the station. And I was so excited, like, the first offering I'd ever, ever no one had ever taken an offering from me. Like, I got money to talk. 
This is amazing. And I think it's so important for us just to remember where we came from. Like, I'm not entitled to speak to hundreds of people or tens or, or thousands or anything. It's like, just, I just, is this is God that I get to do what I love doing? Whether it's one person or whether it's 50 or whether 10,000 comes. It's just, you know, I still feel like a little child when it comes to preaching. Like, I'm so astounded that people show up. I'm serious. I'm serious. We go places and they're like, we're expecting 300, you know. And if 500 come, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Is there somebody else on the ticket? Seriously, you're giving away free something, iPads. I really, it's still like, in that area, I'm still like, that's oh, amazing. People, they write stuff like they like what I preach. Some, most, some. Most do. Most do. And it's like, that's so exciting. As I, I just love this. And so, so I think it's really important that we stay thankful. That we just, that we cultivate it. And that we cultivate it, some of, some of that we cultivate it because we remember where we came from. And we, we remember that, that preaching to the convalescent hospital was exciting at one point. It was, it was exciting. It was the youth group. Preaching to youth group was exciting. It, just, just the, the fact, wherever, whatever it is that God has allowed you to take part in. It's just really important that we go back to that faucet and drink that water. I can't drink cold water without that picture coming to my mind. Never have been and haven't been there for 20 years. I think it's God's prophetic sign to me. Remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. Would you stand, please? I want to just read this one more time, this thing. I feel like this is a prophetic statement. Would you just listen to it one more time? Thankfulness is the door to happiness. It's the gate to heaven. People are like, I want to be happy. You know, cultivate thankfulness, you'll be happy. It's the cure for arrogance. It's the inoculation for depression. And it's a force against the spirit of entitlement. Thankfulness is the fruit of humility. It, it, you, know, you know, humility says, dude, I don't know how I got all this, but I'm just so thankful I did. I, you know, and it's the offspring of gratitude towards God. Thankfulness has saved many a marriage. I want to stop for a minute. Some of you, your marriage sucks. It's just the truth. And, and you know what? You can pretend, oh, I'm a Christian, you know, yeah, we get along. No, no, actually you don't. And actually some of it is just you've forgotten who you married. You've forgotten how, guys, for the guys, you've forgotten what it took to pursue this woman and how excited you were when she said, I do, and how you'd never thought that she would. And Miguel's something similar. I don't know how girls think, man. I'm writing a book about women, and I'm just like, every chapter, I'm like, I am not qualified to write this book. I have no idea how women think. I'm serious. There's something about being thankful for your spouse. 
you know, you get to know each other, and it's pretty easy to be like, I don't like this about you, I don't like that about you, you know, this really bugs me, I wish you would do this different. It's like, okay, you know what, you married a human. You married a human. And the grass isn't greener on the other side, the grass is greener on the side you water. So, you know, and I'm just as guilty as anybody. I'm like, it's just really easy to just forget all the benefits of the person that you live with. It's true. It's the same thing with your job or anything. This is just applies to every relationship. It's like, you know, some of you, you've got a job that you dreamed about having, you know. And hey! <laughs> I hired you. Yeah, I'm probably kicking a dead horse. I think you get the idea. It's just so important to just remember where you came from, to go back to the 76th station and drink that cold water and remember, this is where I came from. This is, I didn't even deserve that. I don't even know how I got here. It's, and Lord, I just pray for us right now. I don't pray for them. I pray for us, all, all of us all. That's a new word. All us all. Shoot, man, I can't wait to go back to Texas now. I just pray for all us all. God, you would help us to cultivate thankfulness. I, just, I know for me, I know you're talking to me. I know you talked to me a couple nights ago. God, I just pray for me to remember in, my, in the life of my family, my job, Every place where I have, that I remember that cold water at that service station, in every place that I have responsibility or that I have favor or that I have authority or whatever, that I would remember the first time I remember how excited I was. And that I would cultivate that in my relationships with people, in my relationships with responsibility in my relationships with circumstances. And God, I ask for forgiveness from myself, and, and I, I think that probably for all of us in some ways, where we've taken you for granted, where we've not been thankful for you, where some of us have been saved so long that it's just, can't even remember what it was like to, to, to actually believe, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Someone's watching over me. The angels are watching over me and stuff. And God likes me. And, and I'm, I'm actually, he, actually, he actually wants to be around me. Those first times when we had the revelation how good you were to us. God, I just pray you take us back to those times. Those times, I pray. And God, I pray that you renew in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit in us. And, and if this doesn't apply to you, just just be thankful that it doesn't. <laughs> but for those of us that it does, Lord, we just pray, renew in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit in us, God. Let us be people of humility, people of great confidence because of what you've done in and through us. Amen.
Thank you very much. Just give somebody a hug with you.